0: Well, this this evening, church, I'd like to begin by engaging you in a thought experiment, if I could. Um, I want you to fill in the blank with at least two words, you know, two descriptors. Ready? God is fill in the blank. How would you fill in the blank? God is... Okay. I heard holy, I heard love. So how many of you thought something like grace or mercy, some of those kinds of qualities, raise your hand. How many of you thought love, raise your hand, right? How many of you thought wrath? Anybody think wrath? You know, it's interesting, isn't it? When we think of God, the word wrath does not normally enter into our thinking. Now, now this is fair, uh, and we shouldn't think bad of ourselves because wrath isn't the first word that comes in our mind, because there is no Bible verse that says God is wrath, whereas there is a Bible verse that says God is what? Love. And so that's understandable. However, you know, God does reveal himself in the scriptures as holy and just, along with those other qualities like Grace and love and mercy, and in association with his holiness and his justice, he reveals himself and his wrath. And so he unapologetically puts verses before us. He doesn't apologize, there's no excuses made, they're just plopped in front of us, and we have to, in some way, make sense of a verse like this The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. We kind of get uncomfortable with verses like that in the Bible, don't we? And yet they're all throughout the scriptures. For some reason, verses like this that are throughout the Bible really disturb modern American Christians, so much so that we, we basically just ignore them or we don't deal with the implications of verses like this. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, one Sunday morning, America, American Christianity seems to respond in such a way to God when he reveals himself like this. And we say, well, that's the Old Testament God. Right? But we worship the New Testament God. And the New Testament God is full of grace and love and mercy. And, and we pointed out that this dichotomy, is, it's a false dichotomy. That throughout the Old Testament, as we've seen in the book of Genesis for many, many weeks now, you see God's love and his grace and mercy extended to sinners. And it's all through the Old Testament, these qualities of God, as is the holy wrath of God towards humanity's sin. And you know, the same thing is actually true in the New Testament. From the first pages of Matthew, you have God's grace and love and mercy to the last of book of Revelation and then running right alongside these qualities, you have the holiness, the justice of God that's expressed in his wrath. It's all there. So why is it that we as modern Christians just kind of want to overlook this and have this skewed, maybe a skewed view of God. Well, I think positively, there could be a positive reason why this is the case. Uh, A.W. Tozer is one of my favorites to read for devotional reading and things like this type of thing. writes this, he says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us? we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. You get what he's saying there? And, and I think in this case, almost from a positive perspective, for many of us, our first words about God, God is love, God is grace, God is mercy, God is powerful, are because this is how we have been experiencing God. And so this is a good thing in some respects that our perspective on God is colored by these words because that is certainly true about them. And praise the Lord, this is how we have experienced Him, right? But there is perhaps more reasons why we have a skewed view about God and just kind of, you know, it pretend the wrath part isn't there. Uh, in some cases, the factors that have influenced American Christianity is, I think, maybe the popular. Uh, television preachers and, and you know, celebrity pastors, and they're teaching and preaching. And let's face it, a 10,000-watt a smile that's promising you a great life just does not mesh with the wrath of God, does it? That is not an inspirational message that makes you leave the building feeling better and willing to give a, an offering on your way out the door. No doubt, though, probably perhaps the the single greatest factor in why American Christianity has a skewed view of God is the fruit of liberal Protestantism and the theology of liberal Protestantism that really began in the early decades of the 1900s. And as that evolved and that system matured and it influenced the mainline churches of America, people's view towards God changed. Dr. Richard Niebuhr was a, uh, a, a well-respected American theologian and scholar and ethicist who wrote uh, prolifically in the 1940s and 50s and into the 60s. One of his excellent books is Christ and Culture. Another one is The Kingdom of God in America. And in that book, he puts forward that mainline Protestantism in America has provided us with A God without wrath, who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. And this is the heritage of that teaching. The heritage of that teaching is what we have in our country today within evangelical Christianity. So there's a number of reasons, some positive many of them negative, as to why American Christians, as American Christians, we are probably predisposed to ignore the wrath of God or to marginalize it or to label it as something that is Old Testament God or something that's puritanical. It was good for Jonathan Edwards and sinners in the hands of an angry God and you know the Great Awakening, but we've moved beyond that now. Our understanding of God is richer and deeper. And that's a shame that it's done this because this understanding, this perspective of God actually weakens the gospel. It distorts the gospel. It actually robs the gospel of some of its power. You see, church, the cross of Jesus reminds us that God's holy wrath and his immeasurable love are what's at the core of the gospel. God's righteous, holy response to humanity's sin is divine wrath. And this is what we see in the very first pages of the Bible, isn't it? When we were in Genesis chapter 2 and 3, when humanity sinned, God expressed his wrath towards humanity's sin by giving them a death sentence. Do you realize that every time you ride by a cemetery and you look at a tombstone, you are seeing a reminder of God's wrath towards humanity's sin? And so, in the first pages of the Bible, God expresses wrath towards humanity's sin. He says, you will die for this. He casts them out of the garden. Leaf forward a few more pages. You have a flood. God's wrath literally being poured out, drowning away the evil and the sin of humanity. A few more pages and you come to the Tower of Babel and he disperses humanity a couple more chapters and you see him destroying Sodom and Gomorrah, right? It's right from the very beginning of the Bible. The patriarch, Job, who lived in that same time frame of those other great patriarchs. He says of the wicked who despise God and sin against God. He says this in chapter 21, let their own eyes see their destruction and let them drink of the wrath of the Almighty. And that imagery, that metaphor in Job is one of many usages in the Bible that we see of sinful men being required to drink the wrath of God. In Psalm chapter 75, verse 8, the the wrath of God is likened to a, a cup of wine. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs, to the bitter part of the wine that is left in the cup when it's, you know, harvested in such a way. So when you think about that image, it helps us appreciate how in the garden, Jesus knew that his purpose in coming was to drain the cup of God's wrath towards uh, our sin. And so in the garden, we read him coming to God and we feel the weight of his words. We feel the terror in his heart when he prays, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then a little later, he comes back again and he prays for the second time, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Jesus drained the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs itself so that his people could be saved. Church, Jesus died on the cross in order to save us, his people, from God's wrath. It's an indispensable aspect of the gospel. My dad got this. The first verse I ever heard my dad quote, and it was a verse that he would quote on numerous occasions. He would quote it to employees. He would quote it to neighbors. He would quote it when he would go out and visit with those in the neighborhood who did not know Christ. It was his life verse. It was John chapter three, verse 36. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. But he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. For us, to really have a healthy understanding of the gospel. We mustn't ignore or pretend the wrath of God doesn't exist. We mustn't get embarrassed over the wrath of God. We must not downplay our need and humanity's need to be saved and rescued from the wrath of God. Doing so demotivates evangelism. It demotivates missions. Why should we urgently tell others about Christ? Because if they do not turn to Him, the wrath of God will fall upon them. It's the cross of Christ that symbolizes this. Accepting the truth of God's wrath actually helps us to appreciate Good Friday It helps us to appreciate the cross of Christ more for it's in the cross that Jesus is truly seen as the the penultimate symbol of God's righteous wrath and immeasurable love. The cross of Jesus symbolizes all of that. God's mighty, incomprehensible wrath towards sin. And at the same time, that immeasurable, boundless, everlasting love, all contained in one symbol, the cross. A few moments ago, we read in Isaiah chapter 53, Christy opened our service with it. And in those verses, it said, it was the will of the Lord to crush him to see him as a sheep who was led to the slaughter. Why? Why was that will? Why was that his will? Because the scriptures tell us in Romans chapter five, verse eight, but God shows his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore, we have now been justified by his blood and listen to what the apostle says Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. There is this gospel paradox in play here, there is a tension in the cross we sang of the love of God, the immeasurable love of God that is symbolized in the cross and that is absolutely true and at the same time, it is this holy, just wrath of God towards the sin of humanity that is symbolized in that cross and this tension is at the core of the gospel. When the Thessalonians, like us, were so concerned about their present, wondering what their future held, Paul actually pointed them back to this tension in the gospel. He reminded them that the cross, at the cross, God's wrath towards our sin was expressed The bad news of the gospel, our sin has an incredible debt. And then he pointed them to the good news that is also at the core of the gospel that God satisfied his own wrath by sacrificing himself upon the cross so that we could be his children. This is the gospel. And so this evening, as we move to the Lord's table, I would like us to read these words in Thessalonians together. They help us see this tension that is symbolized in the cross. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, let's read aloud together. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. All who are here trusting in Jesus, the good news of the gospel, as you are not appointed to God's wrath, because Jesus has borne that wrath on himself on the cross, and that is what Good Friday reminds us of, and that's what this meal reminds us of. And so if you are here and you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, whether you are a member of our church or not, you are welcome to take the Lord's Supper with us as long as you are in good standing with a local church. If you don't yet know Jesus as Savior, let this meal encourage you to turn to the only one who can satisfy God's wrath for your sins the Bible tells us, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that he has delivered to us what he received from God, that on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you, take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, in the same manner, he took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Drink it as often as you drink it. Drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as we do eat the bread and drink the cup, we do proclaim the glory of the cross and the significance of Good Friday until Jesus one day returns and takes us to eternal glory. He goes on to say, this is such a sacred time that we should make sure and examine ourselves so that we can enter into this sacred meal with clean hands and clean hearts. So I want to invite you to bow your heads for a moment and spend some time in silent prayer, preparing yourself to take this meal. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you tell us that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to cleanse us of our sins, of all unrighteousness. So we come to you as your children, so thankful that you chose to pour out your wrath upon your only begotten Son instead of upon us. Him in our place, is a gift that we can't even begin to fathom, but in the small ways that we can as we take this meal, we thank you and we praise you that you poured out your wrath upon Jesus, Yet he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. To his glory and in gratitude we say amen. This evening, let me give you this quick instruction. We're gonna take the bread together and we'll take the drink. It's important with these little deals that you do the bread first. If you take the drink off first, you're gonna have a mess on your hands, okay? So let's take the, the layer off of the wafer. Jesus says that he is the bread of life, that anyone who eats of him will never die but will live forever. Take and eat the body that was broken for you. Now, if you'll flip that over, the scriptures tell us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. But because Jesus shed his blood, we have fellowship one with another and with our Heavenly Father, take and drink in remembrance of him. Heavenly Father, thank you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. May we never lose sight that the great why behind the cross is the need to have your just holy wrath expressed against our sins. And that the great why behind the cross is you loved us so much that you chose to endure your own wrath so that we could have eternal life. We praise you and glorify you for your sacrifice. In your precious name, we pray these things, Jesus. Amen.